This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the show. Our guests this month, Stuart Copeland of The Police, Stuart Braithwaite of the band Maltwai, Welcome to Season 2 of Sending Signals. How the world has changed since we last spoke. So when I made the last episode, I didn't know I would be taking a break, but I was getting a bit behind, and then as the pandemic hit, a big episode fell through, and it seemed like a good time to take a break finish another project I was working on, and just reassess the show. Pretty soon, interviews started to mount up, and I got excited about the show again. So we're back. If you followed the show, you'll know its aim was to explore creativity in various forms. But season one was largely focused on music. This will continue to be the case. But as with the last season, we'll take some diversions. In future episodes, we'll be going behind the scenes on one of my favourite movies of last year. We'll take a trip to Savile Row, and we might even go beachcombing. For this month, though, let's start with a policeman. Imagine you were born in Virginia, USA, the youngest of four children. But a few months after your birth, you moved to Cairo, Egypt. It's the 1950s, and around age five, you moved to Beirut in Lebanon. What you don't know is your father is one of the founding members of the CIA. He's a spy. You later have to make a swift exit from a country when it transpires your dad's best friend is actually a double agent. Don't you hate it when that happens? You move to England and join a boarding school in Somerset. You then attend college in California. You move back to England and become a road manager and then drummer for a folky prog rock band. Punk rock happens and you form a scrappy little trio and emerge onto the scene. Your sound develops, you pick up steam and become one of the biggest bands on the planet. You're not the best of friends, and with the band operating on the sort of level most bands can only dream of, you say, you know what, we're done. Over the next 20 years, you work on film scores for the likes of Francis Ford Coppola and Oliver Stone. After that, you branch out into computer game soundtracks. You reform your scrappy punk band for a hilariously huge world tour. You write operas, you host BBC documentaries, you're supposed to be out on tour with your supergroup featuring Trey Anastasio from a band Fish, but a pandemic has hit and you're stuck on the phone to a hustling English podcast nutter. You are my next guest, Stuart Copeland. Hello? Hello, is that Stuart? Yes, it is. Hi, it's Matt. Hello, Matt. How are you? Good. Where are you? I am in Southend-on-Sea in England. Terrific. Southend-on-Sea. Where the hell's that? Is that somewhere west of Bournemouth? It's, it's probably like an hour from London, uh, along the coast. If you follow the Thames out towards the North Sea. Oh, really? Um, east over there? Oh, man. Yeah, it's kinda, along the coast, yeah. 
That is, there's, there are no big mecca ballrooms that way, so I'm less familiar to me, that part of the country. There's a venue called the Cliffs Pavilion, which has had some good bands. Um, I'm just trying to see if the police ever played there, but I don't think you did. Well, um, it would have been um, either police or curved air. Yeah. I played more places in England with curved air, I think, in, in clubs and colleges and just up and down the M this and the M that. But yeah. in those days, it would have been the A something to get to uh, South End on C. Yeah, A127 probably. Yeah. <laughs> with occasional stretches of the B9421 and then could turn left at the at the pub, you know. <laughs> Are you in LA? Yes, I am. I'm in uh, Brentwood, California. So I've seen some of your documentaries recently. Are you kind of in the space that I would have seen on TV? I'm sitting in that very space. Wow. It takes reminding every now and then that although I look out the windows and there's beautiful rolling hills and I look inside and there's all my fun toys to play with, in fact, no, 85,000 of my neighbors have perished. Oh, my God. And are still perishing. And so it is a strange time we live in. How are you coping? Well, like I say, I need reminding every now and then that there's a problem because I'm having a very good time here, undisturbed by the world, and able to do lots of very cool stuff without life to intrude. And life is not only i got to go to somewhere because there's an event or simply a dinner party or something. There's nothing, which means that the uninterrupted hours, and for the creative process, that is actually... Very important, more than for other types of mental activity. You know, people who are lawyers, they read briefs, and their, their brain is working very hard. Uh, or stockbrokers, they, they check their, the you know, statistics and the research. And there's all kinds of, you know, walks of life that require mental activity. Um, and the produce is not from your hands, but from your brain. But art um, doesn't have any research. Yeah. It doesn't have any briefs. You are creating something out of thin air, which is how we could describe the space between my two ears. Um, <laughs> you literally have to conjure and create a product, sort of like one of those uh, 3D um, printers. Uh, you have to create something in your brain um, and fashion it so that it may be uh, enjoyed by the world, received by the world. Yeah. Is there somewhat of a, a counterproductive pressure at the moment, though, feeling like you've got these circumstances, so you should be creative? Does that work no. against you? No? No. Well, that's good. No. Um, it is very Stalin-esque, if you know what I mean. You know the famous quote. Uh, remind me? Um, one person dying is a tragedy. A million people is a statistic. And so, as I sit here in this pleasure dome, I need to be reminded that there are bad things. A plague is sweeping across the land and great tribulation. Yeah. The apocalypse is not anything like I expected. I didn't expect it to be so invisible. And by the way, um, you're down in South End on Sea, and I'm here in Brentwood, California. In Manhattan, we'd be having a very different conversation. Yeah. Because 
you know, a lot of the world, or if we were in Mumbai, you know, most of the world, you're in the thick of it, and you see it, and you interact with it, and your world is devastated by it uh, every day. But there are some, you know, hiding away in our ivory towers uh, who just need to be reminded every now and then. Um, you should be out with Oysterhead at the moment, shouldn't you? Yes. Yeah. Have you heard the new Fish album, uh, Sigma Oasis? No, I haven't. It's superb. I'm kind of I'm kind of new to the band. Um, I wasn't sort of a fan already, but I tried this new record, and it is unbelievable. Well, I don't buy Fish albums. Right. Uh, I don't have to because um, in Sirius XM over here, there's a Fish station, right. which I partake of uh, liberally. Um, it used to be the jam band station, but now it's just fish. And I remember when it was, because I like jam. I like to, when I drive, not to hear a song, that verse, chorus. I like to hear a guitar solo ramble on, because I'm not really, I'm only half listening anyway. And I don't want the interruption of a tight, you know, tightly crafted song. I like to hear a band just kind of waft out there and groove for a bit. Anyway, it's all fish now. And I used to think when it was lots of bands, that, well, every time a fish track comes on, go Trey. They absolutely blow all the others out of the water. Uh, and so now they finally threw the switch, and it's all fish all the time. I'm not sure if I approve of that, but, hey, fish does rock all those other bands. I won't name any names. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about your versatility as a composer i wondered if you do you somehow compartmentalize the different forms you're working in do you feel like you're using different parts of your brain when you write an opera to when you wrote police songs or when you play the oyster head or is it all reaching for some similar thing inside of you somehow i uh, theorize that it is different parts of the brain um but that's just theory. I have no idea which lobe is which. But uh, from those BBC uh, documentaries, I did get to talk to some uh, neuroscientists about this. And um, one of the things that was very interesting is that music burns and lights up more areas of the brain than any other mental activity. It does language. It does color, smell, uh, obviously sound, language. Um, emotions of all kinds, it is the most plugged into um, mental activity. And music uh, and humans uh, are all hardwired to a very sophisticated degree for music. We're not all Eric Clapton, but we are even, you know, the most curmudgeonly anti-creative um, slob you can think of is really good at music. Such a person can tap his time, foot uh, in time to music, which is curious because it's a measuring of the passage of time and physically adapting yourself to the passage, you know, in a very quite a sophisticated way. Pitch, melody, understanding a tune. God save the queen can be understood by any slob, but not by the most intelligent of other species. And it's a very sophisticated, hardwired. Um, uh, uh, talent. I would, talent's the wrong word because everybody's got it. You know, not not that talented. If everybody can do it, we're really good at music, and its purpose is what those BBC shows was all about. Why do we have this? And I had an argument with Mr. Steven Pinker, no less, at Harvard University. Uh, his theory is that it has no place. That it's a spandrel. That it's just an accident. It's nice, like all cheesecake. It has no function. 
But I, I, I did uh, take him down. In fact, my, my two-year-old grandson took him down because before he's verbal, he can sing a tune. He could sing the alphabet song. And he can't even form a two-word sentence yet. So, Mr. Pinker, it's clear that this human child can do music before he can do language. One would appear to be the building block of the other. <laughs> what was your question, by the way? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm all over this because I'm now cutting little snippets for social media from the series, so I'm kind of deep into all the thought. And I, how much have we got onto the screen? There's so much more than we could fit into those three short hours. Um, you mentioned earlier about art creating something out of nothing, but of course, sometimes you've you've worked with a stimulus. Oh, stimulus is, is uh, very important. And, so, and, and uh, the more unesoteric it is, the better. Because the that's just solid ground from which your imagination can leap. Yeah, because I wondered if it's easier to work on a film score or even an opera of an existing story than to try and create a song out of nowhere. Do you have a, do you have a preference? Well, when you say a song, that is, in fact, a form of opera or film score. There's a story, and the guy's singing about a subject and with language, and there they are. you got got a lifeline to hold on to. But what you're talking about, I think, is absolute music, which has no literal meaning. It's just, it's Fifth Symphony in A. <laughs> what? What's it about? That's for you to decide. This is just music. It's a series of chords and rhythms that make you feel something. And there's a lot of really big music that is absolute music. The great debate between Brahms and Wagner. You know, Brahms' music has no, it, it has a meaning that isn't word, literal. That's not a story. Boy meets girl. There's none of that. It's just a very uh, sharply expressed feeling in music. That's, you know, this chord followed by that chord, there's a feeling in there, you know. And uh, that's how film composers earn their living, the very specific feelings that people understand from chords. The beauty chord means they're going to fall in love. And the music tells, them, tells folks how to feel about all that. Huh. You've got this police orchestral deranged tour um, currently scheduled in, and I wanted you to sell it to me because... It kind of sounds like a terrible idea. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, not only did Sting beat you to it, he took the name Symphonicities first, and then... Yeah, well, I wouldn't have used that anyway. <laughs> he can have that name. I think, yes, you're right. Yes, he did beat me to it. Uh, we'll just skip right over the fact that he also wrote those songs. Okay, never mind that. I do think uh, Deranged for Orchestra is a better name than Stringconicities. Or, uh, what was it? Symphonicities? Symphonicities, yeah. Ah, uh, bless him. You know, it, it, I'm sure it's a great show. I go to Sting shows of various kinds, even his lute show, and I think they're great. I am absolutely susceptible to his art now as I ever was. I can't stand working with a guy because he drives me up the tree, but I do absolutely love all of his his music. Okay, so why would I want to hear deconstructed orchestral versions of these songs that I love? Well, because they're songs that you love. Yeah. Because you really like watching somebody bang on drums. Yeah. And because orchestras can do really interesting uh, textures and things 
um, that a rock band, that you've already heard a rock band do. And although the orchestra is not imitating a rock band, what it is imitating is the cool figures that Andy and Sting came up with uh, as, you know, other versions of the guitar solo in the studio. That jam we used to get into in Roxanne on stage. Different vocalizations and guitar licks that, that uh, you know, they all came up with that are just really cool. And the reason I discovered how cool all these obscure little these things are is because when I made my little movie, my Super 8 movie, Everyone Stares, I, the, the soundtrack for it was made out of this mishmash, um, this bodge-up, this lobotomy, this derangement of the police songs. And I was scoring, they just turned into a beautiful thing. That's what I'm going to be playing with the orchestra. That's the arrangements. That's the deranged part. It's, it's the verse of this song over the guitar riff of that song. It's just kind of barged around. Uh, a lot of it is not deranged. A lot of it. Message in a Bottle is like a diamond. There's nothing I can do to it. There is nothing, not a single piece that I can move that improves on that song and the arrangement of the band of it. Um, so that'll be using orchestral colors to, to play exactly those parts. In other places, I do bad things to the arrangements. <laughs> I take liberties. Yeah. Um, well, you've done a good job of saying it to me. So good. Well done. <laughs> Can I ask, um, in hindsight, does the Police Reunion Tour feel like a much-needed happy ending to that? Yes part of the story yes it was very rewarding it crossed every t dotted every i the three of us can now look at the whole police experience with happiness and love in our hearts it meant a lot to me that you did it i was born in 83 so i had no chance of seeing you originally but i was a huge fan like as a kid sort of in junior school i would be collecting i mean i'd go to like boot sales and stuff and I, I had gutted a blank on vinyl by the time I was about eight I think you know and so you doing that and getting to see you was just incredibly precious and I know it's easy to be cynical about bands reuniting for tours and from a critical viewpoint but it can mean so much when you didn't get the chance first time round you know well I really recommend it. I have a lot of friends who are musicians. Some are in bands that will never hell must freeze. You know, in fact, one of my best friends, uh, hell froze over and they did the tour, you know. In fact, that's what they called the tour. Um, but I recommend it to everyone. Uh, for bands that break up years ago, you know, it's a pressure point. It's not, people are not at their best. You know, there's, Everything's twisted out of shape. Up isn't up. For you know, you're not in a normal world of social interactions where the rules are easy because generations and everybody around you obeys those rules. In a band, the interactions between members of a band—it's a very strange kind of uh, version of a marriage—and you have to get along. And you know, I know lots of bands that do, like Fish, for instance. Those guys just—they <laughs> hang out together after 40 years. Uh, you know, um, Trey will call Fishman and say, hey, what's on TV tonight? Uh, you know, they will go watch a movie. They hang out. Uh, Rush were chums, chuckle buddies. After all they've been through, they still would rather hang out with each other than anyone else. Most bands are not so fortunate. Um, actually, I don't know what the proportion is, but many bands, such as the police, we were mercenaries. 
we came together to make a band. We didn't grow up in the same village like you two did. Um, so we didn't, you know, it was, it was more kind of transactional. Yeah. And although it was about art, and like I've said, I am really susceptible to Sting's songs, his singing, his, you know, what made me want to kill him more times than anything was the fact that he was right so often, you know. Uh, even about even about whether I should play that on a hi hat or a ride cymbal, the fact that he might that might actually be really a good idea is even increases the homicidal rage you see. <laughs> As anyone I'm sure can understand. Did it was it frustrating because you you were kind of the sole writer, like the first single you wrote, you know, and then yes. Sting starts basically writing better songs than you. Did that, yes. did that melt your brain at the time? No, it didn't, because at that time, my career as a songwriter was very undeveloped. Uh, I was in curved air, and it didn't occur to me until very late to get what? You mean the actual song, what, the material that we're playing, somebody owns that, somebody... Wrote, I thought we just got in our, strapped on our instruments and just made stuff up, and uh, you mean you need material? What's that? Then I was, oh, there's a whole revenue stream. In fact, in fact, half of the music, half of the revenue goes to whoever wrote the song. You don't say. Okay, well, I'm going to be a songwriter now. <laughs> and, okay, this is a very short time passed before I ran into Sting. And by the way, um, I've never actually, I should have, I never actually questioned him on this, but because I did actually get to nail him for two hours on the BBC documentary, a subject that we'd never actually discussed before, which is, what is music and why? We've argued like hell over how to play Roxanne, but not the meaning of life or the meaning of music. We never actually got there. But what I should have asked him was that when he joined the police, he wrote jazz, long jazz you know, creations, compositions, very sophisticated. And it was through playing shows like, you know, uh, with the, the Jam and The Damned and Eater and Susie and the Banshees that it was drilled into. And no, verse, cor you know, three minutes or less, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, guitar solo, verse, chorus, you know, the formula. Yeah. You know, he never saw him. So, you know, nobody knew he could write those songs. Not, and this is my theory, not even him. <laughs> <laughs> until he was in that world, and he had to put his 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 uh, imagination into that format. Man, did he have a, a knack for it! Isn't it fascinating that you might not know what you're capable of sometimes? Yes, and as a hired gun film composer, uh, I have had that revelation many, many times. An artist um, goes where his instinct takes him or her. Uh, a hired gun, a professional, goes where the job is. And as an artist, I would never have had to learn how to use an orchestra until the day Francis Coppola turns around and says, Yeah, that's great, Coppola, it just needs strings. Uh, okay, now i got to go figure out strings. <laughs> and so began a very fruitful voyage with strings. Yeah. And then throw in some oboes and bassoons and how about some tuba? Amazing. You may be bored about talking about your dad, but I'm so fascinated by the story. And I'm glad to hear you say that because there's a podcast coming out on Audible. Really? My father, the spy. Wow. Can I ask? I wanted to call it Spy Daddy. Yeah. 
they wouldn't go there. I think it's called My Dad the Spy on Audible. I think that's. I think My Dad the Spy is better. I'll be honest. Okay. At what age did you discover he was a spy? Kind of gradually. But I suppose the nail was hit on the head the day I received a copy of his book, um, which on the liner notes said, Spy Daddy. (laughs) What did you think he did? Uh, Businessman, uh, grown up. Yeah. Dad. So your sudden exit from the Middle East, like, how was that explained to you? Because basically it turned out your Well, dad's... no, by then there was an inkling, because by then Kim Philby, the famous British double agent, uh, had absconded, and, and his son, Harry Philby, was my buddy. And uh, Kim Philby was best friends with my dad, and Eleanor Philby was, Philby was um, best friends with my mom. We had parallel families. We went on picnics together. We went to visit Crusader castles together. We were kind of like... Um, uh, family friends, you know, with uh, parallel kids. My brother Miles dated, uh, what's her name, uh, I think. You know, there's, there's four of us and three or four of them of various genders. So uh, that kind of tipped it a little bit. And then one day I was shipped off to boarding school in Somerset, and the family moved to London. And... Um, I didn't really think that much about it until that book came out. But there's, in, you know, growing up in Beirut, there's a lot of talk of intrigue and spies and shenanigans. You know, there's a lot of that kind of talk. And uh, one of our family story. And by the way, every kid on the playground is bragging that their dad is a spy. No, my father doesn't work for Aramco. He's a spy. Um, and but one day, my older brother Miles came home from school and says, "Dad, are you a spy?" To which my father responds. Who wants to know? <laughs> Family joke. That's incredible. Um, so the the Audible series, is it based on a pre-existing book, or have you compiled something especially for Well, it? my sister and I and my brother Miles, we have his papers, his letters, um, and his um, books, one of which, or maybe two of which, one of which was definitely a bestseller. The other one, I'm, I think, did pretty well, too. Um, so we have, but we he wrote a lot, and he retired to Buckinghamshire, and he became a favorite talking head on 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 the TV. Whenever there was a flare up in the Middle East, they would call old Miles Copeland, uh, and he would go on and say something outrageous, throw bike, because he just liked to, you know, he just liked to throw bombs, you know, make the, let's make this a real cocktail party. My favorite was um, when. The, there was a scandal about the CIA was caught spying on Britain. Americans are spying on us. You know, we're friends. You know, this is how you treat us. And so they call out the old American spy living in Buckinghamshire, put him on the box, and say, "So, Miles, what do you think? Is this? Uh, could this? Can it be so?" He says, "Of course it's so. What do you think? You're some banana republic that doesn't matter. Of course we're spying on you. And by the way, if you're not spying on Washington, you you got a problem." <laughs> that was the sort of thing that we could expect from our father. Yeah. Did your parents go to police shows? Yes. Um, My mother, not so much. um, But my father came, and he vicariously enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Is there anything that you haven't achieved that you still want to? Um, Yes. A couple things. (laughs) In fact, my next call's with my manager to figure exactly that out. 
Really? Well, I mean, I really enjoyed making those TV shows. I like to make more of those. I like to go around the world making music, you know, TV shows about music all around the world. Um, that would be a really fun gig. Uh, conducting. I've just started dabbling with conducting. Uh, in my last orchestra tour, um, I conducted one piece. And, wow, that was really a blast to have 60 musicians and to be guiding the ship. And it's a very different from playing with them as to leading the orchestra, giving them their cues, holding the rhythm down. They, they, you know, one place it slows down to nothing, and then you have to bring them back in. And, wow, that interaction... Um, really is right up my street. I'd like to do more of that. I got to also when my uh, oratorio, Safe in the Fall, was performed by the Mendelssohn Choir of Pittsburgh, all 80 of them, um, just as a gimmick, they asked me to conduct O Fortuna from Carmina Buran. I don't know if you know the piece. Oh, Fortuna! And that was, you know, 80 singer to conduct that. Wow, yeah. That, that I, I'm. I'm going to be doing some more of that. Yeah. Is it? A, is it? Are you power hungry? Is that? Is it a feeling of power? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But maybe not how you mean. Um, not power over people. I desire to be the dictator. Well, yeah, no. I do actually desire to be the dictator <laughs> of the universe. I mean, but that's not primary motivation. But yes, the power. The feeling that you get of empowerment from having them and be, being in sync and leading this charge, and the charge is so powerful, and the 80 singers are leaning forward and giving it, and you're with them, and you you know, that is very powerful. Yeah. Mate, we're almost out of time. Thank you so much for this. It's been amazing. Well, good. I hope you got a story. Look after yourself. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. What a great guest. As I said in the interview, the police were a formative band for me as a really young kid. It was strange seeing the reunion tour in September 07. It was really expensive to get reasonable seats at Twickenham Stadium. And a load of us got a limo up there, which is the only time I've ever done that. It was weird to be connected with my very younger self in that way. And here we are like 13 years later, and Stuart's a guest on my podcast. Life is strange, isn't it? Stay tuned for guest number two. While you're here, if you're new to the show, thanks for listening. If you've listened before, thanks for coming back. Very quickly, if you want to help, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. And leaving a review with your podcast provider, whoever it is, would be really appreciated. Back to the show. Early in 2021, Mogwai will be celebrating the 25th anniversary of their first single, Formed in Glasgow, the band make what you might term as post-rock music. Mostly instrumental, often very beautiful, often very loud. If you want a starting point, 2003's Happy Songs for Happy People would get my vote. But their last proper album, Every Country's Son, from 2017, is well worth your time too. Stuart and I spoke quite late in the evening, just as the pandemic was kicking off. We weren't under lockdown yet, so please keep that in mind and mentally add a sense of foreboding at irrelevant points. Here's my chat with Stuart. Enjoy. Hello. Hello. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? Not too bad. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Excellent. Yeah, pretty good. Excellent. What are you doing? Uh, talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I'm not not really anything. No, just staying in, um, waiting for the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the day the Earth caught fire? The movie. No, no, I've not. Okay. It, it's starting. It is starting to feel like a uh, apocalypse movie, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really, I haven't seen that movie, but I'm really into kind of sci-fi and horror, and I don't know, it kind of, it has, it has so many, like I, I guess it just shows you a lot of these things were really cleverly done because you actually kind of just start to notice people behaving a little bit differently and stuff, and hopefully, hopefully it's much ado about nothing, but yeah, it certainly feels a bit weird right now. Did you ever buy a laser disc player? <laughs> I heard you were thinking about buying one. Um, I, I did think about buying one, but to be honest, my house is so full of crap, and my my wife, kind of, um, yeah, is 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 more keen on me getting rid of things rather than accumulating things. But they 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 have one in um in Dave Fredman's studio in Tarbox. Right, I've heard this. And it yeah. just looks really good. Like the films look really good, and there's something quite satisfying about turning them over halfway through, and yeah. It's closer to the experience of playing a vinyl record. Yeah, and it looks it kind of looks better than a DVD. It looks slightly warmer than a DVD. <laughs> yeah, no, no. If I if I by some weird chance ever have more more room than I need, I'll definitely. It's the kind of thing I would indulge in. There was a podcast where you, you sort of you kind of eavesdropped on a conversation with you and Dave Friedman. And you said, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, you said that you'd sourced him Star Wars on Laserdisc, and yes. um, a friend told me just the other day actually because there's a version circulating of like an original print of Star Wars, and yeah. and I said to my friend, what's the difference? Because isn't the the bonus disc on the special editions that has an original theatrical cut, and apparently yeah. that comes from the Laserdisc print, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I actually I, I got the, there's you can get these bootlegs on Blu-ray called the despecialized editions, right? Yeah. And they're, they're like high def versions without the kind of like the Muppets singing bit in Return of the Jedi or what other kind of or like or like Han Solo meeting Jabba in in A New Hope and all the, all this. All this kind of stuff, and yeah, they they, they, they took most of it from the laserdisc because that's the that's the best version of Star Wars. Annoyingly, the one I got for Dave is actually the laserdisc of the special edition. The, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that's fine. I mean I, I found it in a like a, a charity shop. Maybe maybe I'll try and find them the super duper version for the next time to see them. Yeah, I had an Amazon delivery today of um. 1940s Random Harvest, starring Ronald Coleman and Greer Garson, and it's a uh, it's like a Korean import because it's there isn't like a UK version of it. So yeah, it's kind of weird. It's actually weird. This is one thing like I kind of I'm quite into streaming. I think it's if you told me about it when I was like 16, it would have blown my mind. But you are kind of beholden to these corporations as to what you can see and hear yeah so so for whatever reason something might because there might have been some 
fallout at a boardroom level or, or some anything anything could happen that could mean you couldn't watch your favourite film or hear your favourite record. So I'm definitely a big fan of, of having things physically yeah. if, if possible. So, yeah, I'm kind of at the age, I'm a fair bit younger, I'm sort of 36. So um, I'm at the age to like appreciate that streaming is incredible because I didn't have yeah. it as a teenager and it was really hard to hear records unless you'd saved up to your, po- your pocket money or you went into Virgin Mega Stores and got them to put it on a listing mm-hmm. booth for you or all that kind of stuff. And so, I, you know, I still like really appreciate it, you know, how incredible it is. But I still, I still want to like own the stuff I, I really like. So it's kind of good for a trial before you buy. But it hasn't really got me out of the habit of buying stuff either. But I think, I think no. music's in a much better place streaming than than movies. Like mm-hmm. I, I think, I think generally, the streaming services have most of the stuff I could want to hear currently i mean like it, you yeah say, you say it could change a few years down the line they might you know there could be all sorts of fallouts but um movies there's just there's nothing that comes close to like reaching like my taste in movies as a streaming service yeah yeah that's true it's, it's pretty mainstream i mean i think i think it is important to just still own things if you want to and also places like libraries are important and so no, I I know I I noticed now. I remember years ago, like if you saw a good DVD in a charity shop or a car boot sale or something, it would be like an event, and you can walk into like a charity shop and see like an amazing, like almost a library of great films. Like you could easily live without streaming and still not spend a lot of money and still get great movies, you know. But I do I I quite like the fact that there's actual content creation too. I like the fact that they're they're making things. That's that's one thing about the music streaming that, and I know the politics would just be nuts if they did start signing bands, but it's just like they're they're just like living off other people's creativity and not really providing anything. Whereas something like Netflix or Amazon, at least they're making things. They're trying to I don't know improve the. Oh, I don't know if improves the word, but like add add to what is available. Whereas with music, it's it's just literally just a different delivery system but but at the same time like if 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 mogwai signed a deal with spotify so the, uh-huh. new, the new mogwai album is is coming out on spotify yeah and so it's like well like i'm on you know for people that are on apple or tidal or whatever it's like well now i don't have access to the mogwai album so i've got to join spotify to the mogwai album and but now tidal's got the new ride album and so i've got to join time yeah. right and then you you get that kind of situation i like the fact that most of music streaming services are much of a muchness they kind of have yeah. pretty much the same content there are slight differences but they've got pretty much the same content <laughs> and yeah so that, just... that, that, that's true that's true and i, I mean i i don't know but even uh, I, I guess it's, it's it's hard to equate the two because that that would what you suggested would be a weird and almost impossible situation, but even even if there was some sessions or some, I don't know, like so and so's got, and maybe this happens, and I'm just too lazy. It to does happen, check. yeah. It does. Does happen. it? Oh, they do all that. Okay, they do all that. I'm just yeah. Too that, lazy ha- to that happens a little bit. Pay yeah. any attention. <laughs> um, is there anything you don't want to talk about? No, no, I'm, I'm good. To, to, I mean, I'll tell you. 
<laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm pleased to talk about anything. Um, have you got kids? You've got you got a stepson, have you? Yeah, yeah, one stepson. He's sixteen. Are, are you a good parent? I try my best. Um, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah, I kind of we we go on pretty well. I think so. How old How old was he when you became step parent to him? He was. He was pretty young, like seven or eight. Right. Yeah. That must be a weird situation to find yourself in. Um, not really. Not really. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's just the situation. Yeah. I think it's probably a pretty normal thing that happens these days when people meet a new partner and they've got they've got they've got a kid. So no, I didn't think it was weird. Did it change how you saw the band and like your commitment to the band? I mean, at the same or round about the same time that other members of the band. Um, had kids so to be honest I think it was probably a more everyone's commitments kind of changed a little bit yeah um, I don't I, I don't think your attitude changes or anything but I, I, I think that you maybe become a bit more um, better at managing your time and kind of like when you're meant to be doing something actually doing it making sure that so, something that take should take one day doesn't take three days because everyone's just mucking about, you know, yeah. because the other two days are, are, are there's loads of, loads of important things that don't involve people that muck about, you know, or, yeah. you know, so I, I think it was more, and I, that's just part of, part of growing up a little bit, I think. Um, I mean, it, I guess when you when you have more responsibilities, maybe you maybe make decisions not just thinking about yourself. So I think that that is a bit of a change, you know. Yeah. Um, Mogwai are quite good, aren't they? We try our best. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, is it still is it still exciting? Like, is it is it a battle to not view it as a as a day job? Um, it's it's still exciting. I think I think. A few things have happened that have kept it exciting. I think the fact that we we do other things rather as well as just make albums and go on tour. Yeah. I think the fact that we've been doing more soundtrack things, they're more different and they involve different people. And it's not it's not always amazing, but it's always a different experience. And sometimes it is really amazing. So I think that um, that has kept things more varied than they would would otherwise have been um but no it's it's still really exciting um yeah we're getting ready to record and just waiting for the demos from the 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 rest of them and hearing what other people do with with things i've done and all that's super exciting and the people that we work with like we're going to go back and record with dave fredman who's an amazing guy um so yeah, like just we're very lucky. We've, we're very lucky that people are still interested in what we do, and we're very lucky um, with the people that we've worked with over the years. Not just because they're talented people, but also just the actual people. I think that's, and I think that's true with lots of walks of life, and and not just to do with music, but anything. It's it's the people you get to meet, and if you get to spend time and work with really really interesting, funny, cool people, then. 
you know, you've got it made, and and we're really lucky that um, that's definitely been the case. Yeah, you've got shows already for twenty twenty one. Are these shows potentially going to be to promote the album you haven't made yet? That is the plan. Um, yeah, that that's the plan. I mean, it's it's weird, right? I don't know when this podcast is going to go out, but I mean, we're talking as the kind of shutdown for the coronavirus has yeah. has kind of really kind of happened in the last couple of days. Yeah, we've cancelled all the sport, um, and just pretty much telling people to stay in the house unless they unless they um, really need to go out. So it's kind of it's kind of up in the air, but that, that is the plan. Yeah. I mean, but this, someone might listen to this in three months and just be like, ha ha ha. They thought they could go on tour in January or February, 2021. And, 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 may, and maybe it's going to take a while for, for all of this to, um, to unfold, yeah. you know, it's, un- and, it's uh, unprecedented. Certainly in my it, lifetime. I, I, yeah. Yeah, I've I've never experienced anything like this. Actually, like weirdly, I think that people in North America seem slightly. Maybe I'm just reading this into it, but maybe they seem to be to be slightly more used to this kind of disruption. Right. I think maybe with some of the weather issues they've had and things like um, like the terrorist attack. I mean, it feels like that kind of level of change in people's everyday lives. Whereas, I think in the UK, you're you're in England, aren't you? I'm in Southend on Sea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so like in the UK and England and Scotland and Wales, you kind of don't think about it too much. But it's a very safe environment. It's yeah. one of the only places in the world where, and I've explained this to people when I've been abroad a lot, and they, it blows their mind, but. There is nothing that can kill you, apart from other humans. You know, in 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 most countries, there's a there is, admittedly, a very small chance, but there is a chance that you could go for a walk and something could eat you, or something could bite you and kill you. And we, we don't really have that level of peril. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, th- I, I, I think it's going to ch- it's it's going to even if it does blow over quite quickly. Even I just think this experience will really change how people are. I already know that like so many people that this has really affected how they how they make a living as well. Yeah. And it kind of really kind of hits home how many people are, are kind of relying on their next check for whatever they do to get by and yeah i think i think there's gonna have to be a lot of um a lot more community to kind of look after everyone and kind of kind of like take the slack for the people that that this is gonna pull the rug from under underneath them well assuming that this album is going to happen this the state that you're at the moment you've demoed stuff so do you demo stuff individually and then kind of send it to each other to work on a bit and sort of get it to sort of a, a workable stage and then go to a studio and flesh it out? Or how does the process work? Um, well, well, Barry, who plays piano and guitar, he lives in Berlin. So 
he's not here that much. So yeah. he's been working on his own. And the, the other three, me and Martin and Dominic, have been just going into a rehearsal room and just working on things. To be honest, those... Are you in Glasgow? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're all, we're all in, in Glasgow or nearby. And um, yeah, so we've been doing that and just work, working on songs. And Martin's been working really hard. He's been he's been working on Barry's songs too. So we've not decided um, if we're going to keep rehearsing. I'll see. I'll see what what they think. It would be fine if we just worked on our own anyway. But yeah, I'll see what they think. We were actually meant to be playing in Mexico tomorrow or on Sunday, but yeah, we're we're, we're not going to do the trip because yeah. it, it doesn't seem wise. Well, you've got the tour of the Outer Hebrides coming up, so hopefully but the venues uh, look great. I had a look. Um, yeah, where you're playing it? Yeah, looks, it's going to be fun. It looks fantastic. Yeah, we've we've kind of always wanted to do that. That's something we'd always wanted to do, and we kind of the theory is again a lot of this is kind of apocalypse with with standard to play some of the new songs before we go and record them. Yeah. Um. So there's a few variables there that we might not be able to get together enough to really practice the new songs enough, and live music might be banned <laughs> yeah but if if uh, hopefully th- those things will be okay we'll, we'll be able to do it and it'll, it'll be nice too because they're places that i really love and they're the kind of places that don't really get that many gigs they probably get they probably get their fair share of gigs but maybe not bands like us that usually only play play the big cities so yeah it's, it's gonna be good fun yeah how has the process of making a Mogwai album changed over the years, or has it changed? In some ways, it's changed a lot, and in other ways, it's it, it, it's not changed at all. I mean, the, the big difference from our very first record, I guess, is 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 digital recording because we our first album was just tape, yeah, and then I think our second album was kind of creeping in. That was with Dave Fredman as well, and I think he had like a really early digital editing system or something. But it was still to tape, so like back then there was, and there still is if you choose to record on tape. But is, the pressure is all on how you play the song at the start. Like, can you just play the song from start to finish really, really well? Um, and that, I mean, it's ideal if you can do that, but the there's so many more kind of ways of editing things now that, that, yeah, that some people, I bet there are bands that make records and at no point do they ever play a song from the start to the end. Yeah. But it's just bits of music kind of stitched together on a computer. Um, and then we, we've never went really fully down that route. Although if the coronavirus kicks in, and we can't rehearse, then maybe that will be how <laughs> this album was made. But um, yeah, it, it's changed a lot because of that. Definitely, there's there's more there's more opportunity to mess about with the music than there was before. I can't think of a better way to 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 put it than that. So the studio's become more of an instrument now, perhaps, than it used to be. Yeah. 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 
or the, it's become that type of thing has become more accessible to us. But yeah, I, I think so. I think so. But the the process is, is is still pretty much the same. Just get the the bass and the drums down, then build everything up around that. Um, it's kind of funny because we've we've been doing this now for more than half our lives. So it's kind of it's really weird because when I think back to like making our first records something like that it genuinely feels like it was different people doing it then you know just because your life changes lives change so much and you kind of um go through so much in the in the meantime but it, it, it's funny actually to go back to the to the the coronavirus which is kind of a weird theme but i always th- thought of music as being very um impermanent and 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 being quite unreliable in a weird way and and that was one of the things that really attracted me to getting into football I, I like really like football was that it was so constant and that you could guarantee that for whatever nine months of the year 11 people wearing the same colored shirts would be playing in the same bit of grass and that happened 50 years ago and is going to happen in 50 years time or even a hundred years, a hundred years time, and I think that when they cancelled the football, I remember. Well, I don't remember because it was just today, but it really kind of <laughs> it, it really struck me that that is like a real fracture in what what we consider normality. You know, given how much of your music is instrumental, do, are there images in your head? kind of for each song do do you ever discuss like a a concept for a song or do you do you do you do you see things visually when you make music um maybe not when when it's being made i think when it's being maybe when it's being written at first you'll kind of you can get a sense of what a song evokes yeah um never anything very specific and I think we've always been quite conscious of the fact that music is so subjective and that some a piece of music can seem really joyous to one person and really solemn to another person so I I think we've always been quite conscious to not prescribe anything specific to songs and just let people see how they feel about it but um, yeah, I definitely have really strong feelings about how songs make me feel or or, or make me think about. But again, that can change from from time to time. So, so um, yeah, no, we're we're kind of anti anti conceptual. When do the titles come in? Uh, right at the end, and right. we usually, I mean, we've already got like a. We've got more song titles than songs for this next record, so yeah. And then sometimes we can be really obtuse and give, like, in fact, quite often give songs really inappropriate titles just for cheap laughs, really, <laughs> more than anything. Yeah, "Happy Songs for Happy People" was my entrance point. It was recommended to me, and that's still probably my favourite Mogwai record. Um, do you rate that album? Yeah, yeah, I'm really, really proud of that record, actually. 
that was kind of um that was a weird one too because the the album before it had been our first one for a big label and kind of had like a lot of hype and um it did fine the record did fine but I, I think the people at the label had 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 bigger expectations of it but kind of roundabout when it came out fashion kind of changed it was a weird thing like people got excited about music that was pretty much the opposite of what we were doing people got really excited about like garage rock and yeah. like pretty kind of bare bones music whereas we we were doing something that was a, a bit more um extravagant so we kind of like ended up in a weird spot and that's when we made that album and i i, I really genuinely think and I, I don't know if i'm kind of being over overly dramatic but if we hadn't if we hadn't made a good record um i don't know if we would have made another one because i like the kind of the sand was kind of shifting under our feet a little bit and um yeah and i think that record kind of that record and also the patronage of um robert smith from the cure who took us out on tour it kind of gave us a second wind which was which i think was really important at that time yeah oh it's a, it's a beautiful record i think it's must be due for a expanded reissue soon mustn't it i mean maybe it's a weird one with those those kind of things because it depends what we did at the time and with that record i think there's maybe one maybe two extra songs uh -huh. so it, it would it wouldn't really be much of an expanded reissue yeah although we, we did do a good peel session where we played almost the whole record live so maybe that could go on it yeah we need to yeah we need to make all these cds come out before people stop buying cds <laughs> well I, I'd, I'd like an, i'd like an excuse to buy it on vinyl because i've got it on cd and i'm like I'd like it on vinyl, but I can't. I'm like, I've got no real reason to buy this on vinyl for the sake of it. So I'd, I'd like an excuse to buy okay. it if you can come up with one. I'd, I'd yeah, I'll do it. it. I'll, I'll, yeah, we'll work something out. <laughs> but so that that's probably my favorite record. But to be honest, my second favorite is Every Country Sun. I think you're, I think you're in such a great place as a band, and I think there's an accessibility to the band now which i which i really like and oddly suits you and i'm enjoying the forays into more kind of vocal led songs and there's been a handful that i guess they sound it sounded almost like ride or something you know yeah and so the, the closing song from kin as well uh the end title yeah it, it's odd that for, for mogwai a kind of traditional song structure with vocals and a chorus feels like new territory yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What a strange position to be in. Yeah, it is a little bit. I mean, we had done a few kind of songs with those kind of structures, but they'd been really, really slow. So I think, kind of, kind of happened upon upon it when we did "Party in the Dark," and I don't know if it's going to happen again. To be honest, the, the the process of writing the lyrics for that song was so stressful. Like I literally. It, it was like something from, I don't know, some really cheesy movie, but I literally like sat, the whole album was finished, the music, and I literally just sat at a piano with a bit of paper for like what felt like a long time. It was probably only a day and a half, but <laughs> yeah, it it, it, it it didn't come easily, but I was really happy with how the song turned out. So yeah. Can I ask about the volume 
of live shows because I I mean so I've seen seen you twice I saw you at the Albert Hall which I kind of I think if I was asked what the loudest gig I've been to is my stock answer probably would be Mogwai at the Albert Hall I mean I didn't have a decibel meter that every gig I've been to so I've, I've got no way of actually knowing that and I saw you again at Brighton Dome like a year or two ago uh, with a last uh-huh. album and I um I take I'm more I'm more careful with my hearing now I tend to like shove some tissue in my ears at like most shows because yeah. I'm like um sort of super paranoid about getting tinnitus and I just I, I wondered like what is the state of Mogwai's hearing because you have a reputation for being <laughs> ferociously loud and like has it taken a toll over the decades for you well you know what I was convinced that I was really deaf um but I actually had my hearing tested a couple of months ago, and they said it's totally fine. Yeah. Which, and I always wear earplugs on stage, but... Oh, do you? Yeah, I do, but I hadn't for the first couple of years of the band, maybe even the first three or four years of the band, and that's probably when we were at our loudest on stage. I mean, we were probably playing much smaller venues, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think my hearing's okay. I think Martin said he's... His isn't great, but he's got the click tracks in his ears really loudly, right. which I think is pretty brutal. But yeah, mine are okay. And I mean, it's, it's a weird one with the shows because I really like loud music at gigs, but actually outside of gigs, I really hate loud music. I hardly, I, I can't really handle it at all. But if I'm watching a band or if I'm playing a gig, I like it to be pretty loud. I do think that sometimes it, it, it can be too much and you can't tell what song's going on. I don't know if that's ever been the case with us. I'm sure it probably has. But I've certainly seen some other gigs that have been so loud and I've thought that the volume wasn't adding anything to the experience other than being really extreme. Yeah. But um, Is it something you discussed, like, did, as you got older, was it something that you ever felt... Um maybe not guilt, but sort of responsibility for in terms of what you might be doing to fans? Um, Not really. I think for quite a long time we've had, like, signs up saying that it's pretty extremely loud. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. And, and actually, I think, and I don't know, this may be a complete cod's wallop, but as long as the music's... Are, like mixed quite well it doesn't it's not as hard actually the the worst my ears have ever felt have been in really small shows yeah. with really crappy pas yeah and it's just really loud and nasty and your ears kind of ring for a couple of days yeah um i mean maybe that happens at our shows as well but i kind of have this maybe romanticized idea that if um if it's kind of kind of warm like loud but really warm sounding that it's not as bad for your ears but to be honest that's a load of rubbish it's a bit like my theory that i get mocked for quite a long time where i said you could only get sunburnt once but, uh, <laughs> um it's, it's not you that had the idea that every country had its own sun then no that was not me no <laughs> that's, no, that's no, not, my, it's not true is it Tell me that's oh, not... someone did think that. Yeah, someone did think that, but it wasn't me. No, my dad. My dad was an astronomer, so if I ever ever had said anything like that, I think. Um, yeah. What's the most unlikely billing you've been on? Did you ever play with like camera obscura or anything? What's What's been the most unlikely bill you've been on? We did a tour of France with the Stereophonics one time. Oh, did you? Yeah, 
and we opened for Skunk and Nancy once <laughs> in Italy somewhere. Were the Stereophonics nice? Was it a good tour? Yeah, it was a good tour. Yeah, they're really nice, actually. Yeah, they're really nice guys. Remember, um, oh, and I'm going to forget his name now, which I should do, but the bass player had his name tattooed in his neck at a time when people... Richard, we, Richard Jones? Richard, is that his name right? Yeah. So people didn't really have tattoos in their necks, and I always thought he, he, he seemed a bit of a character, but no, they're really nice guys. Kelly's a really nice guy. Yeah. And I still see him around at festivals once in a while. He always says hello. Yeah, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a terrible combination. Even though they're nice people, yeah, I think they thought we were proper weirdos. And like, yeah, it's just two different worlds musically. Um, is there anything that you still want to achieve creatively? I mean, everything really. And I, and I mean, I know it sounds like a total cliche, but I mean, you kind of, oh, you always think you can make a better record and you can play a better show and go to new places you've never been before. And yeah. Yeah. So no, there's tons and tons and tons. I mean, that doesn't mean I'm not really grateful for everything we have done, but if you ever thought you'd done it all, then you'd be as well doing something else really. Yeah. Um, No, I definitely, definitely feel that. Yeah. There's lots more to do. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you're still together and making great records still. And I think bands sometimes reach a point where they can just they can stop when it gets hard, or they can just ride it out. And often things sort of come around. It's fascinating to see bands that sort of don't split and manage to like keep going. And then it sort of, I mean, you guys must be close to as big as you've ever been. Um, I think so. I think so. I mean, we've had like sometimes at certain, like a, a random one of our records will go really crazy in one certain country, but I mean, generally, I think that we we're playing to more people and more people are listening. It's hard to gauge things on record sales anymore because that's kind of become a bit random. But um, yeah, I think I think we're doing as well as we have done, which is is amazing this far into it. It really is pretty incredible so um yeah i really appreciate it mate thank you so much okay all right cheers matt thank you see you later bye bye see you later bye bye and that's our show it's good to be back thanks this month to adrian and amy for their invaluable help with the stuart copeland interview massive thanks to our guests whose opinions are on see you next month